Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, America's Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. And we are going to go right to the phones. And joining us, a really, really good friend of the show, somebody who just, uh, you got to be really conflicted this time, Mr. Nate Zielinski, because <laughs> some of the best fishing of the year will be coming up. Some of the mountain fishing is at its best right now. We've got um, we've got archery season starting on the 15th for pronghorn. We've got muzzleloader season starting. We've got dove season coming up. We've got upland game starting. We've got, we're not very far from elk and deer archery, and you've got to be scouting. How do you figure out where to spend your time? You know, Terry, we, uh, we just burn the clock at all ends, and we, uh, we do everything we can. We don't sleep, and we try to take advantage of everything. You know, I had a friend, he ran a lodge in Alaska. He said, we, we fish when we can, we eat when we can, and we sleep when we can. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I would say sleep usually goes on the back burner. Uh, you know, if anybody has watched uh, a lot of the little Facebook updates that we do on the Tight Line Outdoor Facebook page, everybody's like, boy, Nate looks a little rough, you know. Uh, and there's no doubt that, that uh, the lack of sleep takes its toll. We definitely try to uh, take advantage of everything out there. You know, uh, the sheep archery season opened in a bunch of units today, so we got some friends out doing that. We'll be joining them this week, so we're excited about that. Um, you know, Pronghorn's the 15th, doing a lot of scouting for that. Archery elk is coming up here in just three weekends, uh, so doing a lot of, of the elk and mule deer scouting. So there's everything going on, and, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that, that fishing is, is phenomenal right now. So definitely got to take your pick. Yeah, and I know that this time of the year, you really, really dedicate yourself to the movement of those animals. And you and I have talked so many times about, you know, if you don't have time to get out and don't have time to do the preparation, as long as you know you can get out there safely, you understand your firearm and your bow, you understand your equipment, um, don't, we're not telling you not to go hunting because you should spend every minute in the outdoors you can, but set your expectations because the success of almost any outdoor endeavor starts weeks before you get out there. Absolutely, Terry. Education is everything. We've been talking about that. You know, we've been talking about that, that Bowtech live feed. I've been doing that for, you know, almost two months now where we've been really, you know, preaching the scouting and how it's great because I have a lot of people that, have just now really joined on the bandwagon of heavy scouting. So I have hunters all across the state, really even you know multiple states. We have guys in Wyoming and Utah that have been watching that live feed and been doing the scouting, and all of a sudden they got it. You know, for the first time they're like, "Man, I finally understand. I, I, my my tracking these animals it, it came together. I know where the animals are at. I know where they sleep. I know where they drink. I know where they eat. You know, every minute of the day, I know where they're at. And although hunting season hasn't started yet." Those are the hunters that are literally going to just put all of that education into play, and it's going to be a slam dunk for them this hunting season. That's, that's really what we want to talk about today, uh, especially on the elk side of things. So right now, let's say you haven't been watching any of those scouting things we're talking about on Facebook. You haven't been listening to this radio show. You're, hey, I have an archery tag or a muzzleloader tag. I need to get on the bandwagon. I have to get on it. So, you know, with three to, to five weeks left, depending if you have an archery tag or a muzzleloader tag for, for archery or for the, that elk season here in Colorado, now is your time. You have a couple things you have to know. 
number one, you have to get a good idea of where the animals are at. So if I was going to go out scouting now, or I have a three-week prep for this upcoming big game season, I would go out tomorrow, I'd go out in the next week or so, and I would really put a major emphasis on finding animals. So I would try to find the highest point I possibly can. I would try to sit behind the spotting scope, and I would try to look, you know, anywhere from right next to you to three to five miles away, and I would just try to find animals, find a lot of elk, find a lot of mule deer. Once you find those animals, then you're going to start breaking down into a pattern. So let's say this weekend you find animals, that would be my goal. Next weekend, I would try to start to to get a little closer to these animals, and I would start to try to figure out where they're bedding, where they're feeding, and where they're drinking. That would be my next clue. And if I have the option, maybe get a little closer, maybe set a trail camera up on that water hole or, or get close enough to where you can start to see these animals migrate to those little areas. And then the last weekend of scouting, right before the hunting season starts, uh, the last few days before that, I would really start to put a big emphasis on learning my wind and learning really the, the fine-tuned minutes of time, you know, to where, hey, at, you know, 9 o'clock, the wind switches and these animals are in their bed by that time. Or really, you're, we call it just putting it together. But you're going to take the education of knowing the animal, knowing the food, knowing the water, knowing that the bedding areas, and you're trying to put it into a cycle, um, literally to the, you know, we say the minute, but hopefully to the half hour of, hey, at this time, these animals are doing this. At this time, they're doing that. To where when hunting season rolls around, hopefully all you have to do is make that educated decision when the animals are at the most vulnerable peak, put yourself in front of those animals, make good decisions, and it should all come together. But really, the scouting process helps us make good decisions more so than bad decisions. And bad decisions is what crushes most hunters here in Colorado. You know, we push the envelope. We get excited. And there's no doubt when you have a a big buck, a big bull in front of you, we do get excited. But any time that you get excited and you push the envelope, you make those bad decisions, you try to rush in there. Hey, I think I can get to that animal before the wind changes. And you can't, and you blow them out. Or, hey, I think I can sneak up on the animal instead, which is almost impossible. And you blow that animal out. If you make the good decision to back off, hey, let's hunt this animal this afternoon. Let's hunt this animal tomorrow, next weekend. It's going to give you more opportunity to that animal, more time to learn that animal, and more time to put that animal on the ground as opposed to making those rush decisions. And usually you push that animal off, and very few times do you ever see that animal again after you push that animal off. So we're trying to scout through the next couple of weeks to where we have education to make good decisions when we're in the field. Now, a couple points I really want to hit on what you said. First of all, I want to talk about the winds. A lot of novice hunters are beginning, and maybe some advanced. They think, okay, well, the winds, how can you judge the winds? The weather is going to be different when I'm up there. Well, the weather does affect it in our daily climate and storms and cells that come through. But you're talking a lot about thermals and changes in air temperature and altitude that really are just consistent day to day, aren't you? Absolutely, Terry. You know, that's the thing we talk about, and I should break that down. That's a great point. Um, you know, your thermals are very, very consistent, and your wind direction is going to be on top of that. You know, most of the peak times of hunting, that, that first two hours of the day, the last two hours of the day, generally speaking, we don't have as much wind as far as, you know, weather wind. Most of the, the air movement is going to be with thermals. You know, and the thermals are going to, going to change with temperature. So generally speaking, your thermals are going to be sucking down in the morning, sucking into those valleys. It's going to switch sometime between – 8 and 10 in the morning and start sucking back up. They'll suck up all day, and then sometime in that afternoon, those peak windows, sometimes, say, 4 to 6 p.m., those thermals are going to switch and start coming back down again. Uh, but it's important, whatever your thermals are, you don't, don't quote me specifically, but get out in your area. Get yourself, uh, like, a smoke-in-the-bottle wind checker, a, a nice light powder in a bottle. Check that wind, and I scout the wind 
as much as I scout the animals. If you had to say the number one failure amongst hunters uh, in Colorado or the western United States, I would say wind is the number one thing that hurts hunters. It's the number one thing that ruins a hunt. And so many hunters don't estimate, you know, what those animals can smell. I mean, if you have even the slightest wind change, I mean, to where those thermals are barely moving, those elk and deer can still smell you seven, 800 yards away. And that's the big mistake is everybody thinks, ah, they can smell me 100 yards away, no big deal. But it's more like that seven, 800. So, so many hunters get close to the animals, the wind starts to switch and they start to leave. They say, hey, oh, my wind's switching, let's leave. But Usually, they don't get far enough away by the time those, that wind gets to those animals, and oftentimes, you ruin that hunt even if you didn't know that you did. So, knowing those thermals and really hunting protectively, uh, you know, and hunting on the defense is really what's going to help you get that animal on the ground. Yeah, and another thing, too, and you talk about the scouting, you know, a lot of people are pumped up. They'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to be out where they're going to hunt before sunrise, but, you know, it doesn't necess- it doesn't hurt but it doesn't necessarily help you to scout these animals just at noon either because the moving they may have bedded. So you have to be out there during your hunting hours when you scout, scout these animals. Scouting the hunting hours is everything, and you said that right. Everybody tends to they scout lighter than they're going to hunt. You need to scout the exact same energy level in which you're going to be hunting. So, you know, if you're going to be hiking four miles in and being four miles in, you know, a half hour before light to where you're getting set up on these animals, that's how you need to scout these type areas. You know, if you're going on a horseback, you need to go in on horseback and do your scouting. Um, you know, I have animals right now, you know, I, I watch these animals on a daily basis. And right now I have a, a group of elk that is very, very gun shy during the light. These animals are bedding down. They're very active at night. So this one group of animals with this very, very mature bull, they're bedding down literally at 7.15 in the morning. And they're not getting back up until about 6.30 at night. So, I mean, it's a very, very tight window uh, when it comes time to hunting these animals in a couple of weeks. I'm hoping that as our temperatures cool off, we got a great cold week coming ahead of us. I'm hoping that helps these animals stay out a little longer. But right now, today, they're bedding down at about 7.15 and getting back up again about that 6.30. So that's how early it can happen. Now I have other animals that I'm watching with another good bull that stays out a lot longer. I had these bulls out till almost 10 o'clock the other day. Uh, that was a cooler day, but this animal isn't as you know urgent to get into bed as some of these other ones. But generally speaking, across the board, I would say by 8 o'clock, 8.30, they're in their bed, and they're not getting back up between 5 and 6. So keep that in mind because those are your times. So if you get up there at 8 o'clock and you're not seeing animals, there's a good chance that you just missed them and they went into their bed. And again, the, the number one rule that we always follow, let these animals go to bed. It's a great idea as a hunter. Let them go into their bed. Let them have that time. Hunt them before they go to bed and hunt them when they're refreshed after that bed. But once an animal goes into its bedding ground, for me personally, that's like a sanctuary. To me, that's like private land. The second they go in their beds, I am done. I never bother them in their beds. Let them have that time. Hunt them on both sides of that, and that's really going to help you. Let that be their sanctuary so they always have a place to go to rest. You never push these animals out. Is it too early to tell what kind of uh, activity levels we're going to see, if the rut is going to come early, if it's going to be good calling? Or are we still too early to predict that? You know, Terry, it really depends. We had an early spring, which is fantastic. We have a lot of grass right now. Uh, I mean, you have a little bit of everything that, that really determines this rut. Um, you know, the rut's going to be very active, I would say, regardless of how we judge it. The big thing is, is how much rut activity happens during the day. So last year, you talked to animals across, or you talked to hunters across the board that were watching animals, and everybody's like, the animals are not rutting, they're not active. 
which is not the case. I mean, if you look right now, you know, my area, almost every cow has a calf. So they had an extremely good breeding season last year. Problem was, due to the heat, due to the pressure, due to kind of the overall system, these animals did 99% of their breeding during the day. They weren't bugling it or at night. Excuse me, all the breeding was at night. They were hardly active during the day. They weren't bugling. They weren't talking during the day, which therefore gave the indication to hunters that they weren't running, but they were running. But as far as this year goes, our temperatures are slightly down from normal right now. Um, our grass is high. I would say right now we had snow on Monarch Pass last night. Um, I would say we're looking at a very normal, if not slightly early rut this year, if I had to guess it. Now, the biggest thing that we could help us is if we could start getting some really cold temperatures in the high country and to start to wilt that grass. The second you start getting that wilted grass uh, and getting that grass to kind of start turn tan is going to be a number one indication to the cows, hey, it's time to, to slow down on the feed. It's time to start getting into that, that kind of time frame of that breeding. Uh, and the, really the cows are going to indicate everything at that point in time. So, I would say right now we're, we're very much on schedule, if not maybe a day or two early from the signs that I'm seeing. Uh, I can tell you that I have had five different bulls uh, already bugling fairly aggressively uh, in my scouting. So I have five bulls bugling. I can't say that they're trying to round up cows. Uh, I would say that they're more playing around, if anything. Uh, but regardless, hearing a bugle in late July, early August uh, will definitely get you excited as a hunter. There's no doubt about it. All right. 30 seconds to a minute. Somebody wants to go fishing tomorrow. Where are you going to send them? Or where should they, where would you take them if you were guiding? You know, I, I hate to, to pass up the walleye because that walleye bite is still incredible. It is the year of the walleye. But right now, the northern pike bite uh, all across the state. I mean, if you're fishing stagecoach, Williams Fork, Spinney, 11 Mile, the pike bite is absolutely through the roof. Uh, my best day so far this week was five large fish. I had five fish in that upper 30s, low 40s. Uh, but right now, the pike bite is absolutely on. We're seeing giant fish and lots of those fish. They're aggressive. Uh, they're very typical uh, techniques this time of year. We're throwing jerk baits, work extremely aggressive, working spinner baits fairly aggressive, and working topwater baits. So if I had to, to name the game right now, 100% of it's going to go to pike just because that pike bite is absolutely fantastic right now and lots of opportunity and very large fish. All right, my friend, um, we'll let you get back out there and do your scouting, and we will talk to you again next week. How do people get absolutely. a hold of you if they want to book a trip? You know, go to tightlineoutdoors.com. Also, make sure you stay tuned to the Facebook page. And also, make sure you go like the Nate Zelinsky Facebook page. It's a fan page. It's brand new. We're going to be doing a lot of live content and a lot of videos about scouting for elk as well as fishing. So make sure you like the Nate Zelinsky Facebook page. But everything else is revolving around tightlineoutdoors.com. All right. Thank you so much. We will talk, to you. You, talk to you again soon. Nate Zelinsky, what a great, great, uh, great resource he is. By the way, folks, I've been forgetting to tell you, follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. A lot of what you hear on this show, there's links to my column in the post. There's links to my television shows. There's links to upcoming guests. There's links to uh, podcasts of things we do on this show. So follow us outdoors on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. And Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We are going to go right to the phones now. Joining us, he's the editor of Trout Magazine. He's an editor-at-large for Field and Stream Magazine. He's an author. We're going to talk about some of his books. An accomplished fly fisherman. And I hear he's actually a resident of Colorado, although catching him here gets to be more difficult at times. Mr. Kirk Dieter, good morning, Kirk. Terry, how are you? You know, I'm doing great, and uh, 
apparently you are too. You've been on some great trips. Well, and you got some coming up. We'll talk about those in a minute, but um, I want to talk a little bit first about your books coming up. Then I want to get, I know you have been back in fishing Colorado, and I want to get some uh, updates for our fly fishing friends out there. But uh, years ago, you wrote with our dear friend uh, Charlie Meyer a little book called The Little Red Book of Fly Fishing, and now you followed that up with a new book that has just recently been released. Tell us about that. Yeah, this one's called Trout Tips. It's simple, just like the Little Red Book. It, one or two paragraph tips that come from all different members of TU, uh, coast to coast, and some of them are redundant. You know, you'll hear the same thing from a guide in Alaska and a and a school teacher in Pennsylvania. Uh, some of them are different points of view on the same approach, but it's it's meant to, you know, not not to be super serious. Rather, it's something you can sit and read and grab onto something and say, hey, uh, that makes sense. I I think I'll try that next time I go fishing. And it, it's done really well. There's 250 little tips in there. It's a small book. It's only, you know, $17. And it's a small, same cut size, same everything as the Little Red Book of Fly Fishing, which is done great and over the years you know charlie and i wrote that in 2010 just before he passed away in fact and uh, to date we've sold over 75,000 copies of that book oh, and it's an awesome book i have mine sitting on my desk in my office you know i want to comment on something you said about you may get different tips from different fishermen mm-hmm. and you know i run a lot of the seminars at the international sportsman's exposition and i have a lot of panels that we put on and we do a lot of presentations and one of the comments i always make in those panels is that when you ask us a question if we have three or four people in the panel you're liable to get five answers because we're not all going to agree and one of us is going to change our mind but we base those those answers on our extensive experience in the field and our extensive experience with other anglers and there's no absolutes in fishing. The idea is to grab onto things that you can try that maybe work for you. And then and, and it's different for different anglers. That's right. In fact, uh, you know, even Charlie and I disagreed in, in the Little Red Book on some things. So I'll give you an example. I, I was, you know, we would go fishing together, and he would always wear muted gray and green colors. And I'd show up in a red Hawaiian shirt, and it would drive him nuts because he'd say, Peter, you need to be more camouflaged when you're out there in the water. And I said, Charlie, you know, a good cast uh, in the right spot, they will never see me coming. So it doesn't matter. But, you know, it's funny. Now, uh, several years later, I'm starting to wear a lot more of the grays and greens. And <laughs> I kind of learned, learned that maybe he was right all along on that. It doesn't, at least it doesn't hurt you to, to, to be more blended in with the, the background. So, Well, you know, and even in casting, um, one of the – Men who's considered the greatest casters of all time was Lefty Cray, yet he doesn't cast the way any certified caster would teach you. That's right. He's a three-quarter, I'm like a baseball pitcher. He's a three-quarter armor, um, not directly over the top, like Steve Rajeff, another great caster, straight up over the top and out. Um, Lefty's not really a side armor, but he's three-quarters. But what he does better than anybody is teach the feel for loading the rod. And... Sometimes when you're at that three-quarter position when you're casting, you can sneak a peek uh, and look at the line and figure out, you know, when the line is extended and what you're feeling through your hand on the rod, and and it all comes together. I, myself, am actually a three-quarter arm caster as well, and a lot of that is because I like to watch the rod while I'm casting. Did I ever tell you about um, when I had Lefty Cray and Bob Clauser on the show at the same time? (laughs) And and Lefty goes to... um, um, to uh, or I think Bob reminded Lefty. He goes, Bob. He goes, Bob says, Lefty. He goes, do you remember what you uh, 
you told me that time when we were out for the first time we went fishing and Lefty goes, yeah. He goes, I asked you if you watch your back cast. And, and uh, Bob said, no, I don't. And Lefty said, that's good. I wouldn't want to look at it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I don't like what I see. I'm not saying that. Yeah. You know. Hey, um, before we move on to some other things, give me one of your uh, favorite tips from the, the new book, something that will get the fly fishermen a little bit uh, anxious to see the book. Well, you know, this it's a very simple it's a, it's a forehead slapper, but if you think about where you're casting and if you follow the bubbles at all times, a foam is home. It's an old adage, and Beverly Smith from TU, she, she gave us the foam is home tip that's part of the book. But I think the, my favorite it was kind of reinforced by three or four different people in that you're going to find 90% of your fish within three feet of the bank. So... You know, and that that comes from the guides in Alaska, like I said, and people in Georgia and Pennsylvania, and all. You know, it's just it's a true truism that that plays out no matter where you're fishing. So keep your feet wet, or keep your feet dry rather, as much as possible. You know, the wetter you are, the lower your odds of catching the fish. Well, you know, I think that leads to something too that I see so much, um, especially when fly fishermen. Now, I'm not. I fly fish quite a bit, and I don't consider myself, it's part of my repertoire, but I'm not an expert, and I'm certainly not an expert caster. Anybody who's fished with me will will tell you that. But I think some people, they get so enamored with their cast, they forget that the idea is to put the fly and present it to a fish, not see how pretty and how far you can cast. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and in fact, uh, you know, I love this. There's nothing wrong with a great cast. It'll never hurt you. But, gosh, that's not the price of admission for so many people who, have come up to me and said, gee, I'd love to fly fish more, but I'm just afraid that I'll never get that cast down. I said, hey, look, it doesn't matter if you mail it or if you flop cast it or drop it or whatever. It just has to be floating the right way when it gets to the fish. And so presentation, I think think perfecting a good mend and a good drift is almost more important in trout fishing than perfecting a great cast. I can attest that Karen and I, is her first fly fishing experience, we're up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I had made an attempt to tie some flies prior to that. I was just, this is years and years ago, and I, I decided I needed to learn to tie so I could talk about it, at least be intelligent about it. And so I, my, I made my first elk hair caddis, and it kind of blew up on me. It didn't look like anything I knew that existed in the wild. But I put it in my box anyway. Karen had never fly fished before. Well, we're up at the park, and we're on one of the rivers, and I, she's got up. She says, "Give me something I can just load up in the water, flip it out, and let it drift." So I gave her that fly, thinking, "Okay, if she loses this, who cares, right?" Right. And so she's loading it up, flipping it out, and I'm sitting just downstream from her, making these precise presentations, I think, and all this kind of stuff. And she's up about five to one on me, or five to nothing. And I'm thinking, "Okay, there's not another fly like that in the world. It can't be my presentation." So I'm looking through my box, trying to find another fly. And it was a compartmentalized box, not where the hooks were in something. And I dumped the box. So now these, you know, 100 flies are going down the river. Well, they're eating them now because they're getting a good drift. (laughs) (laughs) But she just, by loading that rod, was just kicking me. And that's something that you you hit it right on the head. I tell you what, Kirk, what I want to do is I want to take a quick time out. And I want to come back and find out where you've been fishing in Colorado and where you're headed out for on your next adventure. Sounds great to me. All right. We'll put Kirk on hold. And then when we get back, we're going to talk to him about uh, about where he's where he's been fishing in Colorado and maybe a tip on where he's going on his next uh, bucket list trip. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Hey, hey, hey. 
Now that's an appropriate uh, lead-in because that's what I intend to do this afternoon. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's premier outfitter. I want to go right back to the phones. We are talking to the editor of Trout Magazine and editor-at-large for Field and Stream Magazine, accomplished fly fisherman, Colorado resident, Kirk Dieter. Kirk, before we went to break, I did want to, um, I forgot to ask you, where can we get the book? We talked about trout tips. Where, when and where will it be available? It's available right now. Thanks, thanks for asking, first of all. And, and it is available, and a lot of your local fly shops are carrying it. And if you can't find it there, you can find it on Amazon and online. And uh, Also, we're having a campaign that supports Trout Unlimited right now called our Calendar Campaign, where members get their calendar. And, and, and for a, a little smaller donation, um, you can get a, a copy of the book or two that way, too. So. That's awesome, and you're supporting good causes and so you know maintaining the resources that are important to not only conservation but to our our recreation too. So it all it all adds up. That's right. We're we're fixing the rivers and making them fishable. So uh, that's what we do. All right. Speaking of the fishable rivers, I know you've had time to be out for some strange reason. You were fishing in Colorado lately. So <laughs> where where have you been, and what have you been seeing out there? Well, you know it's it's my my favorite time, and and. You're right. Unfortunately, I travel a lot, and I, but I live here for a reason. People ask me my favorite place to be and fish, and I say I live in Colorado because of that. And uh, now is prime time. It's hopper time. I've been doing a lot of floating on the Colorado River all the way from Pump House down, you know, several beats down, um, that whole stretch. And then lower Colorado is good now. The Roaring Fork is great. Arkansas is great. Everything seems to be on, and, and it's just my favorite time of year because we can use those great big terrestrial grasshopper-type flies, you know, an Amy's ant, and then drop a copper john below that and, and go all day with oh. two, two flies. And and I love it because getting back to my casting skills, I can plop a grasshopper down because they plop anyway. I don't have to make a delicate cast. And with my old eyes, I can see it. And But the main thing is it, it's such an incredibly effective way to fish, Kirk. That's right, and it's fun the way they take the fly. It's a, it's a, imagine a giant T-bone steak, all that protein coming down the river at once, and the, the fish looks at it, and sometimes they'll nose it, and sometimes they'll follow it for 20 or 30 feet. And whether you're in a boat or waiting, you just got to be patient and let that fly stay on the water. And sometimes it's subtle, just inhale it, and sometimes you just crush it. So you never know. It's a mixed bag when you're terrestrial fishing, but I think it's the, the most dynamic type of fly fishing you'll ever find. Well, even in Rocky Mountain National Park, terrestrials, big beetles and hoppers, the, the small cuts that will come up and eat one of those out of a pocket is phenomenal. I do have a question since you've been drifting the Colorado quite a bit. Another thing I love to do in the fall on the Colorado is the big streamer fishing. Are we still ahead of that? That's not really happening yet, or are you mixing that in? No, you know, we had a cloudy morning the other day. I think I went last Wednesday, and it was cloudy, and we, we threw streamers for a while uh, in the morning and did really well. And then, you know, we switched over just for the variety's sake and, and, and went to the hoppers, and at the end of the day, we went back to the streamer. So nope. didn't really have a nymph on all day, which, you know, it's fine. Some days you have to have that on, but th- this was a great day because we could streamer fish a little bit and then mix it up and have the big dry flies working and then go back to the streamers. Well, that- that's an awesome way to fish. So if somebody's looking for somewhere to go, you mentioned a number of rivers. Maybe they don't have a float for the Colorado. If you were going fly fishing tomorrow and you just had to walk Wade, where would you go? Oh, I'd probably 
head up in fish sections of the Blue River was looking really good when I passed it the other day. Um, you know, right outside of Silverthorn, that's a great spot. Of course, the South Platte is, you know, it's it's loved by so many because it's so unique. And yeah, it gets busy sometimes, but go out there in the evening and hike in and uh, find a spot, and you'll definitely see some some good good fish in there right now. And then the Arkansas, uh, I love the Arkansas, especially when the water comes down. Uh, a little bit this time of year is as low as it gets, and, and, and low and clear usually means good dry fly fishing. Well, you know, this is a great time if you want to hang a nymph a good distance below an indicator to fish some still waters, too. I believe you probably should have some calabatus and some chromatids coming off those lakes, too. Yeah, that's true. In fact, you can go to Spinney, and, and uh, early in the mornings, uh calabatus thing is typically happening until the wind picks up, and then that'll shut that down in the middle of the day. But the morning, you can catch big cruising rainbow trout and and they eat the dry flies on the calabatus patterns it's it's almost like there's too much going on. You can't figure out where to go. Oh, this time of the year, you know, we talked to Nate Zielinski about this earlier. Between the hunting, if you're, you know, a lot of fishermen cross over. I hunt. You know, we get, we've got the hunting. We've got the fall. We've got, we're starting to see the the conventional fishing changes the baits and the water levels are changing and there's new opportunities there in fact we're going to talk to ronnie castiglione in the next segment about chasing white bass i mean that you know and that's something you can do with a fly rod right now too is chase these white bass and wipers on the surface right now i know and i i've not done much of that i need to do more of that Maybe i'll talk to ronnie and see if he'll take me sometime it's a, it's uh it's there's a, there's so many different opportunities in Colorado, and there are a lot of great places. You know, Michigan is where I'm from originally, and and uh, Montana, and you know, great fly fishing states. But you know, I rank Colorado right right up at the top. So a couple minutes left. Where's your next major trip? You told me you got a bucket list trip coming up. I do. I'm on my way to Brazil. I'm going down to catch peacock bass and some. Uh, other interesting fish like arowana and pacu and arapaima. I've been to the jungle several times, and I'm, in fact, kind of working on a book, Long Range, that will be out in a few years from now. But uh, it's kind of the golden age of fishing in South America, kind of like the uh, golden age of the African safari was 100 years ago. It's just wide open and very interesting stuff. Well, it would be good to hear a report from you. In fact, when you are back, well, I'd love to get you in studio and spend the whole show with you. So. Okay, I'd love to do that. Uh, I'd love to get you in here. We need to have you on more often. Our schedule's crazy and you and i you and i you know that we have never been on the water together well we'll fix that Let's... yeah we really need even if it's just uh some little stream somewhere and we're just plopping a little dry fly out we just need to get out well yeah i'd love to have you in my boat anytime all right well thank you thank you so much for joining us again tell them about the book where they can get it uh trout tips and you can get it at org, and you can get it at your local fly shops as well uh, okay. Thank you so much, Kirk. Thank you just so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Always oh, great to talk to you. Thanks again. You bet. Kirk Dieter, what a resource he is. And God, he's just uh, tremendous. And he's such a nice guy. I mean, he could be, he's so humble about everything he does. And I just, I just get blown away because he's accomplished so much in the fly fishing industry. He's, he's just, uh, just been so super for the industry and for the, the people. You know, let me tell you a little bit about, uh, but honey smoked uh, salmon before we go. I mentioned it early. We're talking about fall and getting out here and eating the right food. Well, it's certainly that. And we it's a superfood. But I got a confession for you to make to make. I really eat honey smoked fish companies, honey smoked salmon because I like it. I mean, I, t- I talk about how healthy it is and how good for you it is. If it wasn't good for you, I'd still eat it. I really like it. Karen and I made up my favorite way to make it. 
is a one part cream cheese, one part honey smoked salmon. Put it in my food processor and make a nice uh, spread out of it. It's so delicious. And usually I'll add in a little seasoning, you know, change it up. We made that about a week ago. Just because we got we get done with the radio show, we're there in the afternoon, we're kind of relaxing, didn't want to have dinner yet, wanted something light later. I had to physically take the honey-smoked salmon and put it away after we made that spread because we weren't going to eat dinner if we kept eating. It was so good. If you haven't tried Honey Smoke Fish Company smoked salmon, go to your local store and give it a try. Terry Books from Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's premier outfitter. We are going to go right to the phones now, somebody we haven't talked to for a couple weeks, and I know he's on some fish, and he's going to tell me where I need to go and start doing some fishing. In fact, I think you're going to talk about some fishing, Ronnie Castiglione, that you and I have done together. Yes, sir, Terry. You know, it's definitely getting to be that time of year where... One of my favorite species to target are those happy little white bass that are in a lot of the lakes. I think people are surprised when they find out how many of the lakes here in Colorado actually have white bass in them. And the other big surprise to people is that they don't really realize how big those white bass can get, Carrie. I'm here to tell you, you know, some of these lakes like Boyd or even Horseshoe, for example, we have white bass that will weigh, you know, three, three and a half, maybe even four pounds. So they're a great opportunity to get out and target those fish. They're a lot of fun to catch, and they're wonderful to eat, Carrie. Oh, they really are. They're, and most parts of the country treat them as a panfish, and, and they are like that. And actually, the white bass in Colorado, because of our shad population, does get actually bigger than the average white bass you find around the country. Yeah, we have massive ones here, and they're definitely all about eating the shad, especially as we get into mid to late summer and all the way into the fall. And they gorge themselves on those things, Terry, and they grow really, really fast. And it tends to be that most of the lakes that have the white bass in them, they have a really good self-sustaining population of white bass. So those are the kind of fish that you can go out and you can target and you can harvest those fish. And you don't necessarily have to worry about doing any damage to the lake because uh, they breed like rabbits, Terry. They'll they'll be back in numbers, you know, so take as many as you want. Don't feel bad about it. Um, and they're wonderful to harvest, and they're definitely a lot of fun to catch, Terry. Well, and when you talk about um, fishing for white bass, especially as we get towards fall and the bait fish are suspending, my experience, I know you're going to take this to another level, but my experience is there's two ways. You know, one is you look under your electronics and you fish for them below the boat with a spoon, but the most fun way to fish for them is if you can find them on the surface. Absolutely, Terry. And just like you're mentioning, there are several different ways to go about catching them. And electronics are definitely going to be a big deal as far as if they're not showing themselves on the surface. So if they're not coming up and pounding the bait fish on the surface where you can visually get an idea of where they're at, then you're going to have to pay attention to your electronics. And there's a lot of different ways we go about catching them, Terry. So let's say I, you know, I get on top of a school of fish and they're, they're relating to the bottom more than anything. And the white bass will do that a lot of times. They'll park right on the bottom a lot like walleyes will. Um, when they're set up like that, Terry, then we go about catching them with, with something like a blade bait where we're going to rip that thing real hard. And I heard you and Austin talking about working blade baits earlier in, in the show. Uh, that's an excellent way to target the white bass when they're relating to the bottom. They'll also bite a jigging spoon in that scenario when you're seeing them on the bottom a lot of times. And then the other real consistent way to catch them when they're kind of associated to the bottom is going to be swimming a little grub, Terry, something like a three-inch power grub. Usually I like to swim the little white one 
ones, and maybe I put them on an underspin jig head or something along those lines. It gives it a little flash, a little vibration. Uh, swimming those real slow along those white bass when they're when they're laid up on the bottom, or maybe when they're suspended just slightly off the bottom. That's an excellent way to target them. Now, when they're kind of you know middle of the water column, Terry, and there's a lot of times we'll see them where they're not popping up on top, but they may be middle of the water column. Well, then we're going to target those with crankbaits or something along those lines that we can work through the schools of bait, or we're going to get right on top of them and, and drop tube jigs to them or drop gulp minnows to them when we're seeing them on the electronics and they're just kind of down in the water column. That's an excellent way to target them, Terry, and you get on top of them, you're going to run through numbers of them doing that. But my most favorite way to catch them, without a doubt, Terry, and we've talked about this before, is when they are pushing the bait to the surface. Uh, it's a lot of fun when you time that right, Terry. When you get out on the lake and those white bass are up fully in the shadow around the surface of the lake, one, you can spot them at a great distance. So you can see them from, you know, maybe a half a mile to a mile off if you're really paying attention to what's going on. And they get up and they churn, Terry, and that's the exciting thing. They get up and they look like saltwater fish, you know. You watch those saltwater fish shows and you see those big schools of tuna or those big schools of jacks and they're coming up and they're absolutely just wrecking the surface uh the white bass will behave like that and so it's an opportunity to get out and kind of do that style of fishing where you're visually chasing them around the lake as they're pushing the bait around and you're making really good accurate casts at those fish and it tends to be that when you get near them, you make cast, everybody on the boat will load up like, you know, just like tuna fishing. They'll all load up, all the rods will bend, and then you'll fight them in, and then you'll have to kind of look up and see how far they've moved off from you and then go chase them down again. But it's definitely a lot of fun. If people haven't done that style of fishing before, I highly recommend it, Terry. Well, and another thing, too, we talked about fishing them below the surface and, and different ways you can do that. And by the way, I wanted to mention when you were talking about the blade baits and the jigging spoons that when they are positioned like that, especially if there's balls of bait above them and they're below down by the bottom, those jigging spoons and blade baits will catch a lot of other fish because you're going to have walleyes and smallmouth and catfish and everything else eating that bait. So that's a great way to fish. But a lot of Absolutely. people, a lot of people don't feel confident in their electronics. They have trouble fishing those deeper fish. Where if they could, maybe that the surface ones, you have to have some patience. You have to be on the lakes at the right time. But maybe you don't have to have the best electronics to be proficient now because the electronics don't necessarily come into play now when you're on the surface. So I think a lot of people it gets them into a a type of fishing that they feel more comfortable locating the fish once they do surface. Yeah, and it's one of those deals where, you, you like you're mentioning, it's it's all about timing. Uh, it tends to be that when I see those fish come to the top, uh, it's often in low light conditions. So you're talking early and late in the day or maybe overcast days. And it tends to be when there's little to no wind. So if you're getting out there and the wind's really blowing hard, uh, you're not going to spot those fish. And it tends to be that the bait fish in that heavy wind don't come to the surface, so the white bass don't come to the surface as well. So, you know, you're definitely trying to time those right conditions but give you an example, Terry. When I go to the Boyd Lake, for example, and I get there in the morning, you know, and a lot of times I'm showing up at 5.30 in the morning, that kind of a thing. If conditions look right to me, then when I get to the boat ramp, if it looks like the white bass are going to be up, then the first thing that I'm going to do when I launch the boat is I'm going to do basically a, a big,
big figure eight around that entire leg. You know, I'm going to go all the way to the south end of Boyd. I'm going to make a big circle all the way around it. And then I'm going to run to the north end of the lake and make a big circle around it. What I'm doing is just basically visually scouting for those fish. And, you know, fortunately, our lakes aren't very big. So it only takes me, you know, maybe 15 minutes to run all the way around Boyd and visually take a look at all of the water. Um, white bass move dramatically, and they can move from one day to the next from one end of the lake all the way to the next end of the lake. So unless you get out there and you initially make that pass around the lake and visually look for those fish, you know, you may set up on the south end of the lake and look around and decide, well, it doesn't look like the white bass are going. But in reality, they're all on the north end of the lake and they're going like crazy and you're just missing them. So one of the big tips I give people is to go out there and just make that pass all the way around the lake and scan that lake visually. Everybody on the boat be looking from side to side and be visually looking for signs of those fish rolling, those fish popping. The birds, a lot of times, will give them away, Terry. And so you can spot the seagulls a lot of times from great distance. But that's not always the case on any given day. Some days you get out there and there's not a bird to be seen. And those fish are still rising and chasing bait. So make a lap all the way around the lake. Visually look for those fish when the conditions are right. And then if you spot them, you want to come running in on them as fast as you can. Turn the boat off as quick as you can. Everybody stand up real quick and make real, real quick, accurate casts right in front of those fish right the direction they are going, the direction they are pushing the bait. And it usually is that we're throwing something like a really shallow running jerk bait or maybe a topwater walking bait or a little popper or something along those lines. When they're up on the surface busting those shad, Terry, it's all about getting something in the top couple feet of the water column and making it look like it is a wounded, erratically stunned little shad. If you have the ability to make an accurate cast and do that with your presentations, it's almost a no-brainer, Terry. Once you get to that point, you make those casts in front of those fish they're gonna load up on it and they are a lot of fun to catch terry i've had times when it was almost a fish on every cast and i've gone back and forth from the baits you mentioned from a popper to a to a little crankbait to a little jerk bait and i think size is almost more critical than anything it really is especially you know this time of year when the shad are relatively small um, and white bass are really particular about size, so you can definitely overpower them with too big of presentations. So you want to make sure that they're little baits that you can throw at a good distance. You know, that style of fishing, I know we've talked about it before, but it really sets up for a few things in particular, Terry. It sets up for using nanofill, which is the one of the lines that Berkeley has that is excellent for casting light presentations of very long distance. So I like to run nanofill on maybe a seven-foot rod with a little bit of fluorocarbon leader on that, put my jerkbait on the tip of that, that allows me to make really, really long, accurate casts so that I'm not having to move the boat all the time. I can make those real long casts at those fish as they're moving around the boat. And then the other thing that sets up really good for that, Terry, is Berkeley's got a new cutter that's coming out this year. They were, they were showing it to iCast, and Chad's had some uh, some sample baits that we've played around with. They've taken that cutter line of jerk baits that they've made, and now they've come up with a shallow cutter. So it's like that cutter 90 that they've been making, but it's designed to run just a top couple feet of the water column. I'm here to tell you that that bait right there is going to be a great one for the white bass. Once people can get their hands on that, that's the kind of bait that has enough weight in it. You can huck it a good distance, but it's going to stay real, real shallow like that. And when those fish are on the surface chasing bait, you can definitely be too deep in the water column and you won't get any of them to bite. So a lot of times it's about being up where they're looking. They're looking up when they're chasing those shadow rounds, Terry. You're absolutely right. Ronnie, we got to go, but if people wanted to book a trip with you or even talk to you more, they can find you guys at Fishful Thinker, fishfulthinker.com and Facebook, right? Absolutely. You can find us in all those spots, and we'd be happy to take you out.
All right. Thank you, Ronnie. We'll see you soon. You and I got to get out and chase these again. Yeah, let's do it, Terry. Maybe this week. I hear you're around this week, so let's try to get it done. I'm going to give her a try. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Ronnie. All right. Bye, Terry. Ronnie Castiglione, another great resource, the Fishful Thinker Group, you know, Ronnie and Chad and Dan Swanson. It's going to wrap it up for this week. I want to mention again, follow us on Facebook. Facebook is the hub of this show. It, it's where we post my, my columns in the Denver Post every week. We post any of our television shows that go up online. We post important things that happen on this show. We give you updates when we're on the water. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook is the key. Send us your outdoor questions to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors at Gmail so you can get a $25 gift card from Sportsman's Warehouse if we answer your question on the air. I want to thank Kyle for uh, running the board. Karen for keeping me in line even though I I got in late, and I was chased. I was on airplanes for five hours last night. But we're going to make sure you join us right here every Saturday from 9 to 11 for Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We're going to send you out to D-Max out at training camp while the Eagles take us to the top of the hour on 104.3 The Fan. Now we